Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer Radio Show, brought to you by Calm Bach Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, national spokesman for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds program, and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Hang on one second. Hello. Okay, that didn't seem... One second, please. Calling in from Spain, but... uh... Oh, yep, let's see what we got here. Alrighty, I need to see. Uh, let me call back in and make sure I am uh, back over here on air. We had we got Dr. Petisky. He is over in Spain, and he is calling uh, live today uh, into this live television show. So give me one second, and I'm going to get back on to make sure I've got everything and all my chickens in a row. So stand by. We'll be right back. All right, sorry about that uh, interruption. Uh, Dr. Petisky was actually calling my cell phone instead of the switchboard number. And, uh, again, he is uh, um, over in Spain uh, doing some training. And um, I don't know if, what do you call it, a sabbatical maybe over there, but he's still doing chicken-related research. Um, He'll tell us all about that when he uh, calls in. So hopefully it will actually work. This is live radio uh, just as you hear it. And he's over in Spain. I think he's eight hours ahead of us. Um, so it's about 8 p.m. there, but um, today's topic is um, fowl pox, and uh, we're going to go to our first commercial break and get that out of the way, make sure he can call in okay. If there's dead air for any length of time, it just means I'm trying to get him on the air uh, and get him in the switchboard um, from Spain. So um, to live radio, apologize for any technical issues, but we'll go to our first commercial break and uh, get that out of the way, and we'll try to get uh, Dr. Petisky on. We tried a test call earlier. It worked out good. He just called me on the cell phone. It worked out good. Now we just got to get him to call on the switchboard. So uh, we'll go to our first commercial break and work out some of these technical kinks. We'll be back talking about Valpox. At Kambach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, Our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. 
Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. The Yardbird Chicken Plucker takes the hassle out of backyard chicken processing by fully defeathering birds in less than 15 seconds. The compact size makes it easy to transport and easy to store. The 1.5 horsepower motor and 20-inch stainless steel tub can handle two 8-pound birds at the same time. There are no belts or pulleys to wear out and no adjustments necessary, which makes it virtually maintenance-free. For more information about how you can own this must-have chicken processing product, visit YardbirdChickenPluckers.com today. That's YardbirdChickenPluckers.com. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. All righty, thank you very much for uh, staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And um, let's see what we've got here. We uh, try to get um, Dr. Petiski to call in, and I know, um, yeah, and um, he's had the, oh, I think he's called in, so uh, this is awesome. Let me uh, let me go and fix one thing, and then we'll make sure that we're all live, including Dr. Uh, Petiski and uh, and me and everything else. So probably about seven minutes of dead air. We'll come back. I'll be live again, and um, Maurice will be live again, and we're ready to go. I see him in the switchboard. So we are grand for this show all about foul pox. So stand by. All righty, I just wanted to make sure that uh, everything was uh, good to go. We are live. I can see that I'm live, and I'm going to the phone lines right now, and I'm going to bring on Maurice, uh, Dr. Maurice uh, Pateski, and he's with UC Davis right now. He is in Spain, um, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what he's doing out that way. We're going to be talking all about uh, foul pop. So, uh, Maurice, welcome to the show. Great. Can you hear me okay, Andy? I can hear you okay, yep, uh, across the pond. That's pretty awesome. We appreciate you taking your time out of your day and your research uh, over there and totally <laughs> across the world and uh, coming in today and uh, educating us all about uh, our backyard poultry. So we thank you very much for coming on today. 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm actually on a, on a sabbatical at a veterinary school in Spain, uh, working with a professor here who does a lot of work on nutrition, and then also trying to get a little better handle on some of the differences that the uh, European Union has with respect to uh, salmonella control than we have in North America. So hopefully by the time I come back in uh, mid to late August, I'll, I'll, I'll know a little more about a couple of those, those topics and be able to to work with uh, you and your and your viewers about uh, some of those issues. That'll be great. Just real quick question: Do do the commercial farms over there where you're at? Uh, do they is it mandatory or do they have it in their I guess regimen to vaccinate their layers with um, the salmonella vaccine? No, that's have a great question. Not- um, so so they they do not require uh, salmonella enteritidis vaccination like we do in California. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. but in the rest of the United States, we do not require salmonella enteritidis vaccination. Um, there's right. differing arguments on that. Um, one yeah. argument is that if you do the surveillance, which you have to do if your farm is above 3,000 hens in the United States, if you do the surveillance and you don't find the salmonella enteritidis, why should you vaccinate? Um, and mm-hmm. that argument basically says, why would why would a farmer uh, want to waste the time and energy and uh, the vaccine usually to be efficacious you have to give three vaccines and the third vaccine is a killed vaccine and that killed vaccine uh, causes a drop in uh, egg production um, and it can cause um, those birds just to be a little uh, off for a couple of days their feed conversion ratio goes down so the argument is like why if I've had a farm for 10, 20 years and I've never found salmonella enteritidis on that farm and I do my surveillance, why would I waste my time, energy, and money on vaccinating a flock against a disease I've never had? And the counter to that argument is, you know, why take the chance? Um, and, and that's kind of the, you know, they're the, 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 I don't know what the right answer is, obviously, but those are kind of the two sides of that argument. California for better or for worse, has decided to uh, to be cautious. And uh, the rest of the country at this point, um, not that every state is a major egg-producing state, but the rest of the egg-producing states have decided um, to kind of let uh, farmers, you know, make an informed decision based upon um, the their history of their farm. So it, it, it is a challenging issue, and um, it, it, it's, it's a good question to see what they do in Europe versus what they what they do here. It always starts, uh, not not to deviate from our topic today, but uh, you, you had brought it up. I think it's very interesting that um, whenever, it doesn't matter when, the last decade, whenever there's any type of article about washing and refrigerating eggs, um, and we had a great uh, veterinarian write an article in Chicken Whisperer magazine about it, uh, Dr. Uh, is it Fanini? Is that his last name? I know he's out there at UC Davis and a tech school out there. Uh, yes, uh, Dan Fanini, you know, Dr. Dan Fanini. Correct. He wrote an article about that. But um, every, everybody always is quick to point out and sling out there that, whoa, now, we're the only country in the world, which is which is false, by the way, but we're the only country in the world that washes and refrigerates our eggs. And we know that's false initially, but, but then they always lean to... They don't, they don't wash or refrigerate in Europe and all these other countries, and they don't have these big salmonella outbreaks and things like that. And um, I often point out to that is, you know, some, some of these places that don't do that, uh, they do vaccinate for salmonella. You know, some places, like you just mentioned, don't. But that's that's kind of their, their rebuttal to, you know, um, backyard eggs or farm or small farm or even the big commercial folks is that uh, we're the only country in the world that washes and refrigerates our eggs and we don't have to and then you got some of the guys that come out and, on the extreme and say well if you coat them in vaseline they'll keep for nine months on the counter and you know you have all those but most people are more reasonable and, and have more of a um maybe a more reasonable uh date that they feel comfortable leaving them on the counter and then not washing them or not washing them until they use them but but I know that that's always a big uh that's the first thing they reach for is we're the only country that that uh, washes and refrigerates their eggs and then you know they, all these other countries don't why do we have to so um I was that's why I was curious if they vaccinate and I didn't know that California here in the states it's mandatory any farm over 3,000 uh, as far as egg, egg producers uh, to, to uh, vaccinate their flock um, and I, what is it um, 
Iowa, the big, huge state egg producing. I guess, they, like you said, California is the only state, so they don't have to. But that may be a great future show to have you on and talk about. I'll bring Dan on as well, and uh, we can talk about that because it's, there's so much information out there, and some and people just look at the headlines, and, and the article comes out. We're the only country that does, you know, that does, that does this, and, and then they, you know, that type of thing. So that'll be a great topic for uh, for the future for us to uh, hash out and get the real information out there to our listeners. But today you're on to talk about fowl pox, and I've never uh, experienced that in any of the flocks uh, over the years, thank goodness. I know that some people have. Some people have had it more than once. Some people struggle with trying to decide if they should get vaccinated uh, chicks are not with this or once they have it to vaccinate if they have it the rest of the flock all these questions that, that come up when, we, when the topic Valpox comes on so uh, we thought we'd have you on and uh, to educate us a little bit about on, on this and how it may affect us uh, in, as a small flock keeper yeah um, before I get to that though I just want to tell one one so I have gotten in some good uh, friendly arguments about uh, washing versus not washing eggs and the one, the one thing I'll tell you now, after a, a couple years of, a few years of talking about washing eggs in front of all kinds of different audiences, I will add washing eggs to my list of things that I will not talk about aside from religion and politics at uh, family dinners. <laughs> it seems to be a very controversial issue, and, and a normally polite conversation starts becoming a little more heated whenever uh, washing eggs comes up. So it's a little funny. It, 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 it's actually it's very interesting that when that specific topic comes up, people get very emotional. It, it's literally like religion and politics all wrapped up in one. I, um, I totally anyway. There's a lot of uh, ra- really famous radio talk show hosts that say, okay, we're not talking about religion or abortion, or they, they have their topics that they just don't talk about. <laughs> and it, it gets very, very heated about egg washing. And um, it's uh, one, one of my biggest issues with it is people think, I, I mean, people think that you could literally coat Superman with the bloom and he would be in, uh, absolutely <laughs> It's non-touchable by anything. Kryptonite, it doesn't matter. He's got the egg bloom on him. You know, uh, you can right, have right, an egg right. bloom. They just put so much focus on this bloom being the most absolutely perfect and wonderful thing that, that's been ever created on Earth, and that it's not, you know, and, but yet it, it too can, you know, it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but so many people focus on that bloom slash cuticle and think that it's it's just like Superman and just uh, protects everything from anything. So that that that's always gets me kind of uh, giggling when they talk about the bloom. So um, that well, I'll keep that in mind, and and uh, if you about out of that that <laughs> topic, I'll get some others that come on. And I did that for a purpose, uh, um, Doc. I when I had someone write uh, for the magazine on that topic, I wanted to make sure I didn't have the USDA or the FDA or the CD come on, CDC come on, because people would automatically be like, "Well, they have an agenda. You know what they're going to say? Wash and refrigerate." So I reached out. It may have been you um, or someone over at UC Davis that recommended Dan. Uh, 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 someone who has backyard chickens themselves, he starts his article by saying, hey, let's face it, I'm in it for the eggs, and I love my backyard chickens. Yet he's a, a, a veterinarian, and so kind of a, the non-biased, if you will, um, uh, to write the article, and I thought it was great, but uh, we need to do a show on it as, as well. So, um, folks, you can go to chickenwhisperermagazine.com and find that issue where uh, Dan wrote that article for us. I believe it was two summers ago so you could look at that and it's probably already on our if you go to the website and click on articles you'll scroll down you'll find it so um, so yeah thanks for that info um maurice so let's go ahead and uh, we'll dive into the uh foul pox yeah so um so foul pox or avian pox is the same same term and uh, I, I think it's, I start off every single conversation or article um, that I that I that I write for you guys. Um, the first thing I'm going to say is is the uh, you know that saying an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and and that means you know that that magical word of biosecurity. Uh, if we focus on prevention, that that's going to be where our biggest bang is, where the where the most amount of um, progress we can we can make. Um, as opposed to waiting till we get the disease and then um, having to to go with some of the lesser options at that point. So I really want to focus on 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 that 
specific aspect. And I, I know I say that the equivalent of that pretty much for every single disease we talk about, but in poultry, um, more so maybe than another uh, livestock and other food animals, we really do focus on prevention. And in a lot of ways, that's, that's, it, it, it's a much more, um, for lack of a better word, kind of evolved way of thinking of disease prevention. We really need to think not, not what happens when you get the disease and what magical uh, medicine we're going to use. We have some of those medicines, but th those don't really get the results that we want. And, and the one thing I really want to mention about avian pox or fowl pox is that the primary way it's spread is through things like mosquitoes and flies and mites. So those types of vectors or insects can spread um, the disease by interacting with the poultry, with the mucous membranes of their eyes, of their mouth, and their throats. Um, so when we think about, again, how do we prevent um, avian pox or fowl pox, we really need to think about how do we prevent mosquitoes and flies and mites from getting um, into our coops. And here, again, is, is the other thing I'd probably say every single radio show is don't make perfect the enemy of good. You're never going to get rid of every single fly, and you should never try to aim for that. That's impossible, aside from, you know, people that have a, a laboratory and are trying to raise um, birds in, you know, sterile conditions. That's not obviously practical for, for any of the people that are listening, including myself. So the, the things that you really need to focus on are how do you manage your manure, um, if you walk into your coop and you can smell the manure, um, uh, that's an issue. If you smell a strong ammonia smell, that's an issue. If you see a lot of flies, that's an issue. Um, so either you have your birds are in too dense of an environment, which is pretty rare for, for some of the smaller commercial flocks and or backyard flocks, or you just don't have a good substrate or, or litter material um, that the birds can basically be raised on. And birds are pretty smart in, in that they'll, if they're on a nice bed of a poultry litter, whether that be uh, rice holes or whether that be uh, sawdust or something to the equivalent of that, um, they'll basically uh, manage that litter material in a way that it will basically compost uh, any type of fecal material that's on there. Um, but if you have too much of that, if you have excessive moisture, for example, those are all things, manure, moisture, that will attract flies, it will attract mosquitoes, um, will attract all types of insects that can be vectors of the disease. And like I said, that's one of the primary ways the disease can be spread. In the commercial poultry environment, you might have a few fewer of those vectors, but the density of the birds is a little higher typically because they're you know, more focused on production parameters. Um, so the disease can be spread from bird to bird to bird to bird. Um, but I think for the, the, the backyarders and the small commercial farms that are selling at farmer's markets, uh, the fly control, the mosquito control, and the mite control become really essential. Um, so we need to really think about how we manage our any, uh, the litter material, uh, how we manage the moisture of that litter. You know, one of the things about the moisture, if it's too wet in there, that creates a, a perfect microenvironment for bacteria. Um, it creates a perfect microenvironment for viruses and parasites to, to reproduce. So we don't want that material to be too wet. And we don't also want it to be too dry. We want it to be what we call a friable. So if you pick up some of that litter material, you should be able to kind of sort of put it into a clump, but it should fall apart on you, if that, if that kind of makes sense. Um, you know, the yeah. other things that, that we want to – sorry, go on. No, I was agreeing. Absolutely. I make totally – Yep. So, so those are things, you know, the other thing that you really want to focus on are, is your watering system. So uh, I think it's one of those things we ignore a little. We, we kind of take water for granted. Um, so if you use nipple drinkers, make sure those nipples are not leaking because if they leak, then they create moisture below and those birds are going to be near that water all the time. And that's a perfect way now for all kinds of um, vectors like flies, for example, to breed and spread disease. Um, if you don't use a nipple drinker and you use a trough system, um, there's challenges with that. Make sure that the troughs are being cleaned out regularly. Make sure on a windy day, and we've had this problem on our UC Davis pasture poultry farm, on a windy day that that trough isn't, the water's not spilling out of that trough and creating a, a nice uh, area of moisture there. Again, don't make perfect the enemy good, but just be aware of what the challenges are. If you do have a lot of moisture there, get rid of some of that litter and replace it with, with clean litter or add additional litter to that. So those are things you just want to kind of be on the lookout for. Um, but again, the big thing you really want to focus on is 
mitigation and prevention. Um, and the good thing about, you know, mitigating and preventing foul pox is that if by doing that, you're mitigating and preventing all kinds of other diseases, E. coli and salmonellas and campylobacters, for example. The next thing I kind of wanted to point out is that when we do think about avian pox, there are two different forms of avian pox. There's a dry pox and a wet pox. Uh, the wet pox has a fancy name of the diphtheric form. Um, I don't always like fancy terms, so we're just going to refer to, for the purposes of this uh, show, the dry pox and the wet pox. And I'm not going to focus too much on the wet pox. In the United States, as far as I can tell from um, the commercial poultry industry and just anecdotally from what I hear from backyarders, the dry pox is a much more common disease than the wet pox. Um, that being said, the virus of, that causes dry pox can also cause wet pox. So you should be aware of that. The wet pox version of avian pox or foul pox is, has much higher mortality and morbidity rates. So mortality causing death, morbidity causing sickness. Um, it's a big, the dry pox is a big issue in the commercial poultry industry because it can cause significant um, drops in egg production. And uh, obviously that's what farmers are paid for is the eggs, not the birds. So they're, they're very uh, keen to, to, to address that. And that's where kind of vaccination comes in, which we'll talk about um, in a minute. I'm not going to talk too much again about the wet pox, but the one thing I want to, so, the, so the, I want to talk a little more about the dry pox. And, and dry pox is a little easier to, to visualize um, and uh, for an owner to kind of realize that they're dealing with a dry pox uh, infection. Um, you will see literally pink uh kind of focal, scabby um, looking pinpoint um, um, enlargements on the comb and the waddle and the eyelids and other non-feathered regions of, um, of the bird. Um, those scabs contain uh, literally millions of uh, viral um, a virus in them. And if you pick that virus off, um, all you're doing is basically putting that virus into the environment. And, and viruses come in a couple different shapes and flavors, but the, the dry pox virus can persist in the environment for a long time. So some owners see the dry pox and they get, you know, they see it on the eyelids and their natural reaction is they see a scab and they want to pick at it. And the reality is if you do that, um, you are contributing. And then if you pick up another bird, especially, you're contributing to the spread of that virus. So I know it's, it's so, um, you, you see the virus and the scabs and things on there. You don't see the virus, obviously, but you see the scabs on there. Um, and it, it's a natural thing to try to remove it. Um, the reality, unfortunately, is, is that when those, those scabs are on the bird, um, especially when they're on the eyelids, you can imagine that makes finding food and water that much more challenging. And that's one of the reasons birds that aren't eating and drinking aren't going to produce eggs. That's one of the reasons you get that drop in egg production. So those are things to be aware of. The nice part about the dry pox is that, you know, sometimes I'll get a phone call from, from someone and we're dealing with merics um, or we're dealing with um, some other diseases. And those diseases, you know, high mortality, um, there's no treatment. It's a little kind of depressing to talk to the owner because there's just not that many options aside from uh, sometimes starting over. The good thing about the dry pox is low mortality. It'll work its way through the flock. Um, but um, it won't cause a huge mortality, which is a, a nice kind of a, assuring thing for, for most owners to know. And then you can kind of plan for how you want to prevent um, dry pox from coming back. So uh, dry pox, is, is, if you do see it in your bird, um, you can uh, decide to either vaccinate at that point if the birds aren't too sick um, or um, once those birds are recovered, you can decide to vaccinate that flock. Um, so one of the nice things about the dry pox is that even if you see it, um, you can prevent it in future flocks or in the flock that you're dealing with right now. If, the, if you just noticed a couple birds that were sick, um, the remainder of the flock could potentially be vaccinated um, and you could um, prevent disease that way. Or you can let it run its course hypothetically, get a drop in egg production, have a low rate of mortality, um, and then you know have your have that kind of be a lesson learned because you know that dry pox is in the environment of that geographical area, and then you make the decision. Okay, every time I have a flock for now on, I'm going to have those birds vaccinated, and that's the perfect 
reason, it's one of the few vaccines for, for small producers that I'll typically recommend based upon if they've had dry pox either in that area, in that specific flock, or in that geographical area. So if you talk to your neighbors, um, if you get a poultry veterinarian, which I highly recommend, and the poultry veterinarian's like, yep, you're, you've got people around this area who've had dry pox in the past, we're going to recommend vaccination, then that's the perfect uh, reason and motivation to vaccinate. In the perfect world, right when you start out, you start with a poultry vet, and the poultry vet has some experience in that geographical region and says, you know what, they have it in this area, let's vaccinate and kind of go from there. Um, so the, the other thing I kind of want to mention, um, I, I, I never try to recommend, aside from Merrick's, I don't recommend that people give uh, vaccine to their birds. And the reason is because a lot of the vaccines are live. Um, the dosage of the vaccine that you give um, can affect whether that vaccine actually works or not. Um, and the dosage that you give can, can either make the bird sick or um, it can um, basically be, uh, if you don't give enough of the vaccine, those birds won't, the vaccine will not take, uh, meaning that the birds will not, um, um, their immune system will not respond appropriately. Remember, when you're giving a vaccine, you're basically producing a mild form of the disease, especially a live vaccine, you're basically producing a mild form of the disease in those birds. So it's really important that you get dosages correct or else you can cause a much more significant version of the disease or a much uh, a too mild of a, of a version of the, of the, of the virus. Um, where I think owners come in is that if you work with your veterinarian, you want to make sure that that vaccine took, um, and that's actually the term, and typically the vaccine is given um, between about uh, five weeks and one month before those birds go into production. You typically don't give that vaccine while the birds are in production because, again, you're causing a mild form of the disease. If you gave it while they were in production, they would get a decrease in production. Um, so in general, um, unless we're dealing with special circumstances, you want to give the vaccine twice, typically, five weeks, and then about a month before they go into production. Um, and then you want to see seven to 10 days later, you want to see if that vaccine took. And what that means is typically the vaccine is given in the wing web, and you want to look at that wing web, probably in about 10% of the birds, uh, to make sure that you see evidence that the um, bird's immune system responded. And you basically want to look at the injection site or around the injection site and make sure there's a nice scab there or some kind of inflamed area. It takes about 10 to 14 days after a vaccine for, for a vaccine for, for an immune system to respond appropriately. So right after the vaccine, those birds are not immune. Um, they, can still cut, they can still get disease. Um, and that's why you want to wait that 10 to 14 days roughly to see if um, you see that take. Um, so that's really important to look for. And, and I, like I said, I don't recommend that, that, that people try to do the vaccines unless they're really under the supervision of a veterinarian. But to avoid that second veterinary call, it's totally appropriate to look for the take to make sure in the wing web that those birds were, um, that they responded appropriately. The other thing that's important to notice is that if you are dealing with that virus in a geographical area where we know birds are affected by it, it is completely appropriate to consider vaccination before uh, that five to seven week period. The only thing I want to note is that if you do vaccinate at day, day one of age, which does happen, um, you need to be aware that you need to revaccinate those birds as they get older. Because um, if they are vaccinated very young, maternal antibodies, the antibodies from the mom that have been passed on to the chick um, could neutralize, basically eliminate um, some of that live virus. And those birds will not have immunity as they get older. So it's really important uh, to work with your veterinarian on, on revaccination. Okay, very good. Okay, very good. Um, the other thing I want to mention, too, is that, you know, laying birds, um, you know, we keep our laying birds sometimes for shorter periods or longer periods. Um, typically, one of the more common versions of the vaccine that's given is a pigeon pox vaccine. And uh, the one thing I want to mention is that 
especially in backyard and some of the small commercial farms, people keep their laying birds for a pretty long time. So this is one of those vaccines that does not last a lifetime and you want to revaccinate every single year. So um, it's really important to work with your veterinarian, uh, establish a good relationship with your veterinarian. Um, and then, especially if you're in a geographical area, and I know there's several areas in California that would constitute as that, um, where you do have avian or fowl pox, you need to revaccinate those birds every single year, especially using that, um, that, um, that excuse me, the, the uh, pigeon um, pox vaccine. So those are, those are really important things to consider. Vaccines, you know, I think, I think some of us um, have a tendency to believe that vaccines are this panacea and they'll cure all the problems that we have when we have a disease. Um, and that it couldn't be further from the truth. The, the vaccine is part of our control of a disease. And it is just as important, uh, no more important than fly control and mosquito control and mite control. Um, if, we, if we lack or if we if we get if we slack on one of those, whether it be the vaccine, whether it be the fly control, um, then we do run the risk of having um, increased disease. And I think sometimes people think, okay, I gave the vaccine and I got the disease, so why would I do the vaccine again? And that's because they didn't do maybe one of the other issues. And again, I tell students all the time, this is biology. Sometimes the viruses don't read the books, um, and sometimes quirky things do happen. The assumption that every single bird that you vaccinate is going to have the same exact robust immune response is, is just not true in biology. Um, and we do our best to control the disease as much as possible. Um, but every once in a while, um, birds do get sick, and, and even in, in vaccinated flocks. But we do our best to control it and to mitigate it. And that's, 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 I think that's the most important thing to focus on. How, what's the health and, the, and the, the health status of the flock, not so much that one out of 100 birds that got sick from, from fowl pox, for example. How do you, as, do as, you a, as, as a, 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 a little bit of the way, a little bit of spade, 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 but respond to folks when they say, when they say uh, regarding uh, security, regarding and how you need to come from having my stuff around your poop and your feet, the fact the number of people um, take pictures of their uh, chickens eating mice. Oh, look, this is funny, and oh, my gosh, it's 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 rodent control, all natural rodent control, da 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 And then I try to post science about that, like that, that can increase your chances of salmonella and it's bad biosecurity and the diseases they carry and eating all the food and the pee and the poo, all this stuff. And then they just they just seem to brush that under the rug and say, you know, well, I can't watch my chickens all the time or chickens are going to eat mice. It's a part of their natural diet. Like, that's okay. Um, they, they just seem to use that as an excuse. Well, that's, that's nature. That's a part of their natural diet, extra protein. Some people say, oh, that's free protein. Let them eat all the mice they want. And I'm just kind of like, Aah! so how, how do you respond to re responses like that when you talk about biosecurity? Also, because you started this topic with it, with the uh, foul pox. It all starts with, you know, good prevention versus treatment and biosecurity. But that, that's one, and you mentioned the rodents and um, uh, um, mites and other things like that, mosquitoes, flies, and do what we can. And I even tell them, I said, look, I understand you can't watch your chickens 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I get it. They may eat the occasional mouse. But to encourage that behavior, to open, turn over a rock while you're gardening and see a bunch of baby mice and call your chickens over to eat, all, eat them all up because you think it's their nature's diet, um, how do you respond to that, that kind of attitude or that um, when, when, people, when you hear people say things like that? Yeah, I, 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 I have dealt with, you know, a handful of people like that. And, and I understand the argument of saying, okay, we're going to let nature take its course. Um, you know, my response to that is that that medicine is, and modern medicine is designed to mitigate um, any type of, of disease as much as possible. So, Sure, if you want to let the birds just live out there and not have nest boxes and, and let them live amongst whatever is out there, that's your decision. And, and, and the reality is, is that if I look at your flock and I look at, if I look at 10 flocks raised that way and I look at 10 flocks raised using 
modern medicine and, and prevention and disease prevention and all the tools that we have now, I will promise you, if you look at any standard, whether it be welfare, whether you look at food safety, whether you look at um, disease control production parameters, that the 10 flocks that are raised using what we know, what we've learned about disease prevention over the last several hundred years would, would do better on average. Is there going to be one outlier flock there that, that someone's going to, you know, crow about, for lack of a better word, about, you know, wow, look at my flock? Sure, that, that could happen. But, you know, as an epidemiologist, I recognize that that, that chance does happen and that that's, that's usually not um, consistently going to happen um, if, we look at, if we look at data over time. Um, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that. It, it, at some level, it just depends what people want. Um, and, and if they're really interested in, in production and they're really interested in their birds being healthy and happy, um, for lack of a better word, they're interested in the welfare parameters of those birds. They're interested in having eggs that are less likely to have any kind of foodborne illness. Then, you know, there, there are some pretty simple things that, that people need to consider. Um, it just depends what, what people want and what their goals are. But, you know, the one thing that, that I do tell people, and I, I do adamantly believe this, especially in California, where we have a, a very large central valley without any geographical borders, um, no one lives in a vacuum. So uh, if you are a backyard um, bird enthusiast uh, in the Central Valley of California, you live very close to commercial poultry. Um, and uh, some of those diseases are regulatory diseases, meaning that if commercial poultry gets them, um, that, that it can have huge ramifications on the uh, economy of the uh, commercial poultry industry. And some people you know, care about that. Some people don't. I understand that. But, it, you know, you just have to realize that what you do isn't just what you do, it, it, especially when it comes to disease control. You don't want to be a reservoir of disease just because your birds don't get sick doesn't mean that the neighbors down the street, the birds don't get sick. And the perfect example of that is actually infectious bursal disease. So in, infectious bursal disease, the virus doesn't, broilers, they shrug at it. They, the virus come, gets inside the broiler birds and uh, nothing happens. But a layer bird, if they get infectious bursal disease, huge mortality, you know, 70, 80 percent. So, and that's just, you know, for the same reason that you and I, Andy, if we were sitting on a plane together and someone was sitting in between us who had the flu, maybe I get sick and you don't because our immune systems are a little different. Same thing with, with broilers and layers and all these other breeds of birds. Some breeds get sick from one virus, some, some don't. Um, but we need to do the best we can uh, with the resources that we have, in my opinion, to, to mitigate um, those birds getting sick. And there is a balancing act there. We want the birds to be able to live in, a, you know, in an environment where they can exhibit their natural behaviors, whether they be you know, nesting or perching or dust bathing, whatever it be, um, and, and how, we, how we mitigate that and manage that relative to disease control is, is an interesting kind of ethical issue uh, at a certain level because you know, if we raise the birds in, in cages, um, maybe that's the least likely way that birds get sick, but maybe a lot of consumers aren't comfortable with that. So there is a balancing act there, I believe. But I think there has to be some middle ground that, that accounts for welfare, animal health, food safety, those kind of issues. Yeah, I, I've, I've come up with kind of a scenario when people talk about, like, well, I'll, I'll post something about the dangers of wild birds to the backyard and how you probably want to remove bird feeders and bird baths where your, your backyard flock is, either into the front yard or side yard or don't have them at all. And people will often say, well, I can't stop from wild birds from just flying down into my backyard. And I'm like, that is a true statement. Um, if your backyard birds free range in the backyard, then guess what? That may be, we'll just call it a landmine. So we've got one landmine in your backyard. Why would you want to add 14 other landmines? We've already got one wild birds. We've got mites, possible mites. We've got possible rodents. We've got, you know, you're just going to add more risk and more uh, landmines to your backyard by now having that by now having that bird feeder for they're going to you know that uh, it's just we paint that picture a lot lot for folks so it's like okay so you've got one risk why would you want to add more risk to your backyard when we've got one we may not be able to control without having a covered run and different things like that so um, I, I find sometimes kind of creative ways to um, counteract when they come back with, well, you can't stop a wild bird or, you know, you can't stop your chickens from eating the occasional mouse, but, you know, why add more risk or why add more landmines when you've already got enough that it's hard enough to control? <laughs> let's, let's control the ones we can and eliminate some of those. Um, I'm going to go to a uh, commercial break, and we are talking with um, 
poultry veterinarian, Dr. Maurice, uh, and he's out at UC Davis. But no, right now he is over in Spain uh, on a work uh, sabbatical, working with veterinarians over there, uh, learning about all different kinds of things, including salmonella. We're so glad and honored that he took time out of his uh, time over in Spain to call in today and talk about uh, avian pox, foul pox, and we'll continue uh, with him, and he'll wrap it up uh, as soon as we get back from this short break. Stay with us. We will return. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at Hensaver.com. That's Hensaver.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, Goodness, Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. All righty. Thank you very much for uh, staying with us today. We're talking all about fowl pox, uh, also known as avian pox, uh, with uh, poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice uh, Pateski and uh, out at UC Davis. But no, he's calling in from Spain. He's on an educational uh, sabbatical out there learning all about 
different things, uh, and he, hopefully he'll bring that back across the pond and, and share uh, his uh, new knowledge with all of us here in Chicken Whisper land. So, um, uh, Maurice, we've got you back live now, and we'll just, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left. If there's anything in your outline for today, uh, I wanted to wrap up, uh, give us any kind of information that we didn't get to so far. Um, no, not not too much. The one thing I wanted to reiterate is is you know always keep an eye on your birds. So you know we have a little UC Davis pasture poultry farm, and I always tell the students you know don't don't just go out there and be a robot. You know go out there and and always look, try to find something new every day that you're out there, and and not to be too preachy or anything. Um, the the sooner you identify disease, the sooner uh, we can do something to prevent it. Remember when you find a sick bird the best thing to do is isolate that bird. So always have a plan for, let's say you've got 10 birds or five birds or 100 birds, whatever it is. In a perfect world, you want a sick pen. Um, so um, you can uh, quarantine those sick birds as quickly as possible so they um, don't spread disease to the rest of your flock. Um, you know, kind of picking up on that, on that, on that line of thought there, um, the pox viruses, especially the dry pox, which seems to be more common in North America relative to the wet pox, which is a good thing because the wet pox is a much more serious disease. The dry pox is one of those things that you can really look out for. So um, look on their combs and their waddles and their eyelids and all those other non-feathered regions uh, for these kind of one millimeter black scab lesions, um, which will they'll persist for about two weeks or so on those skin areas, uh, look for them, because the quicker you find them, the less likely it'll spread to the rest of the flock. Um, again, the real nice part about dealing with dry pox is that um, worst case scenario, you're gonna have maybe 10% mortality, a drop in egg production. Um, and that's, that's not too bad considering some of the other diseases we talk about on this show. Um, that being said, you know, aside from keeping a real vigilant eye on things, you know, the thing that you really want to focus on is how can I mitigate um, the disease from spreading? And one of the ways you can mitigate that is by, you know, being a good farmer and, and, and looking at your birds every day as much as possible and keeping an eye on them. Um, and the other thing is, is, especially with this disease, is reducing the potential of those mechanical vectors um, like flies and mites and mosquitoes. Um, there are some beneficial insects. I am not an entomologist, so um, I have more of a, a generic aversion to bugs. But there are some bugs that are that are pretty helpful, actually, even some mites that are. But again, I'm not I'm not good enough at, at insect identification to to know which ones are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones. The one thing that I focus on, though, is really that litter quality, um, managing the litter material, because that's where flies and mites and beetles and mosquitoes, especially if there's a lot of moisture, will hang out. And uh, the one thing I want to iterate, I come from California, so we use a lot of rice holes. Rice holes are great, but rice holes can't be found everywhere. Um, so if you are in the southeast where there's a lot of peanuts grown, peanut holes are also a pretty solid, good litter material. Pine shavings are also a really good material. Um, the one thing I don't really like is straw. A straw is good for nest boxes because it's soft and the eggs won't crack as much if the eggs are laid on straw as opposed to just straight wire or straight wood or metal or what have you. Um, but straw is not good as a litter material in part because it's just not very absorbent. So if, you're, if, you're, if your uh, animals are defecating on straw, uh, the straw doesn't really absorb that material versus if they're defecating on rice holes or pine shavings or peanut holes or corn cobs, for example, that are crushed. Um, so it's really important to, to have a litter material. And I've been to a lot of backyard farms that don't have litter material. Um, they get by fine. But um, if you want to, you know, thinking, you know, thinking about what, what's the next level of improvement that you want to make just based upon conversations, having that litter material six to eight inches deep is really important. Um, and it, 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 it's something that can, um, again, kind of follow that philosophy of an ounce of prevention um, being worth um, you know, the, the, a pound of cure. Um, so it's really important for, some, for, for people to do that. And I would say the majority of backyard and small pastured uh, farmers uh, don't have sand or any kind of litter material there. And in some cases, they can get by and do fine, just depending on their farm. And in some cases, it's probably important for them to have it. 
Um, whether or not you have it or not, you, if you have poop there um, and it's out and about and you can smell it, um, it's probably something that you want to address and deal with because now you're dealing with salmonellas and E. coli, um, aside from all the viruses that um, can persist there and the flies that will go into that fecal material and then try to spread disease. So managing manure is, is such an important thing, whether your farm is a million birds or whether your farm is, is 10 birds. Um, and then the one thing I will say is, um, so for what we call that the top layer of the litter is what we call the cake. Um, and, and making sure that that cake is removed if it, if it needs to be is also something to consider. Birds, a lot of time, depending on what breed we're dealing with, the birds will kind of rototill that litter material. Um, if there is a litter material there, they can't rototill it if it's just a dirt pad. Um, but um, if there is kind of a cake layer there and they're not rototilling it for whatever reason, um, then that's something that you need to address and, and deal with. I don't like the idea of just removing all the litter in the middle of a flock. Um, because I think the ecology, the microbial ecology of that litter um, has adapted and the birds are exposed to those, those bugs. And that's actually a good thing. I mean, when you think about coccidiosis, for example, you want a little coxie in their, in their, in their environment. I, I, I don't like the risk of taking all that litter out of there and then having them exposed to brand new bugs because you've created kind of a vacuum. Um, to me, that's not ideal. But taking that cake material off, I think, is something to consider depending on how it smells, how much moisture is there. If it's really rainy, again, having moisture is, is a big issue for mosquitoes and flies and things like that. So you want to reduce um, moisture. The nice part about the weather that we're having right now in the summer is it's warm and, and warm air can absorb a lot of moisture. Um, so you want to, to take advantage of that as much as possible. There's awesome information, getting kind of bedding in there and uh, educating all of us on, on that and our bedding choices and how important that can be with uh, preventing disease. Um, I'll wrap it up with this and something you can think about maybe even on the flight home <laughs> when you head back this way. Um, if you know anybody that would be ideal for coming on the show to talk about, because it's been uh, a big topic more recently than, than a long time ago, but really in the last year, and lately it's almost kind of exploded, and that is fermenting feed uh, for backyard poultry. We'll keep it small flock, if you will. And I've never done it. I know nothing about it whatsoever, and so I need to reach out to, again, like we always do, the true experts, and try to find somebody come on that can tell us the purpose, what it's all about, uh, scientifically what it's doing, is it good, is it bad, is it better, is it not, and why, and would it be recommended for 6, 12, half dozen, 24 hens in a backyard, and is it worth its time uh, to do so, and are there any risks and spoilage or mildew and mold, so I, I would love you to uh, kind of... Uh, uh, on the flight home or, or, or whenever, if you know somebody um, that would be great on the show that could educate us on that, uh, the do's and don'ts and why and why not, we'd love to have them on because it's a, it's a hot topic right now. Yeah, if you don't mind having a slight Spanish accent, I can think of a couple people off the top of my head already. No problem at all. I would love to have that. And uh, when you get some time, you can e email me uh, their information. I'd love to contact them because it's, it's a big topic. And, again, it's, it's, uh, you've got people spreading information that they learned on uh, either Google or, or a blog. And so I just want to have a, a really good show about it and so people can make the right decision with the right information, whether it's going to be right for them or not. So that's what we're looking for. So, Doc, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, an extra big thank you for joining us uh, from uh, another country over there in uh, Spain. Hope you are having a good time, eating lots of good food, meeting lots of new contacts and friends, and, and uh, when you get back, we'll have you on, and we'll have a show dedicated to, for you to share us uh, all the information uh, that you learned on the trip. We'd love to do a special show about that, too. Great. Well, thanks for having me again, Andy. I appreciate it. Yep, thank you very much for taking time out of your uh, day in a whole other country to come on the show. So uh, thank you so much. That's going to wrap it up here, uh, Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, always striving and trying to bring you uh, the true experts in their field to get you the right information so you can make the right decisions for your backyard flock, whether it be disease or nutrition or predator control or poops. Uh, and hopefully soon uh, we'll do a, a great topic, a great show on fermenting feet. Uh, Got to get that done. It's, it's been on my uh, to-do list for quite some time now. Sooner 
rather than later. Hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you next week, Tuesday and Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Walk Talk Radio. God bless everybody.